Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where you are part owner. Member NCUA. More at mnvalleyfcu.coop. Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by Lee Pomeroy. Good morning. I've got a very special guest this morning who is writing about the National Forest. It's called Our National Forest, Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands. Greg M. Peters, a freelance writer based in Missoula, Montana. And before he began writing full-time as a freelancer, Greg was a director of communications at the National Forest Foundation, where, among other things, he edited the National Forest Foundation's magazine, Your National Forest, and his writing has appeared in National Parks Magazines, High Country News, Down East Magazine, Big Sky Journal, Outside Bozeman, and Adventure Journal. Good morning, Greg. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Greg, I am, I'm just thrilled to have you on because your book is just, it's beautiful. It's uh, about our national forests, and it's got such wonderful pictures throughout and uh, stories of how the national park system developed. Tell me a little bit about your experience with the national park system as a person, you know, personally. Sure. Um, well, so I grew up in Maine, um, and there's a little bit of the White Mountain National Forest that um, that bleeds from New Hampshire into Maine and western Maine, um, but I actually had never been there. Um, it wasn't until uh, I was a bit older in, uh, in college, actually, that I first sort of really um, started to even understand what national forests were. Um, I actually opened the book with, a, with an anecdote about a time in high school when my folks took us skiing out in Utah uh, on a national forest. Uh, um, many folks probably come to, to learn a little bit about national forests through skiing. There are 120 ski resorts that operate on national forests around the country um, in, in New England and, and out west in particular. Um, and so a lot of folks may not realize that when they're at Vail or uh, they're at Jackson Hole, um, they're actually on the National Forest. Um, I did not know where that. They're, where they're skiing. No, I didn't realize that either. Yeah. We we've visited there in the past, and I just assumed it was privately owned grounds that, that they used, and, and so that's really interesting. Yeah, oftentimes the base area might be privately owned, you know, so there might be a few hundred acres mm. at the base that's privately owned, but typically the, the actual mountains that the that the resorts are, are, are on um, are national forests. And so we were fortunate um, to visit one in Utah, and and that was really kind of my first experience on a national forest. Um, and then after college, I moved up to Alaska and actually lived in a off-the-grid cabin up on an old um, inholding on the Tugach National Forest up in uh, outside of uh, Anchorage, Alaska for a couple years. So um, that all kind of led up to me uh, moving down to Missoula, Montana, going to graduate school, and then getting a job at the National Forest Foundation, as you mentioned. Um, and I became the director of communications there and uh really learned uh, so much more about the national forests and, and the stories they're in and the people that um, work to, to restore them, to maintain them, to um, encourage our enjoyment of them, um, to help uh, the wildlife out that live on them and, and all that kind of stuff. And so um, I was really fortunate to be able to, to collect some of those stories and, and develop this book and uh, also include, as you mentioned, 
Uh, I think there's like 150 photographs or something in the book um, that really, I think, help uh, highlight just how beautiful many of these landscapes really are. Um, they rival national parks. They rival some of the most you know, sort of scenic, um, scenically wonderful uh, places in, in the country. They're, they're really a pretty magnificent set of lands. We're, we're very fortunate as a nation to have them. In the book, you talk about it's 193 million acres of forests, mountains, deserts, watersheds, and grasslands, and how they provide a multiple of uses as diverse as America itself. Now, you mentioned national parks. A lot of times I think national parks and national forests are the same thing, but that's not the case, is it? No, it's not. And I, a lot of folks think that. Um, and that was one of the reasons, uh, one of the motivations for writing the book was to try to help folks uh, understand a little bit better, a little bit more in depth, uh, some of those differences between national parks and national forests. For example, just the size. You know, as you just mentioned, national forests cover 193 million acres. Uh, national parks are about 85 million acres oh. in, in total. So, you know, there's almost uh, more than twice the acreage of national forests as there is uh, of national parks. Both sets of public lands are managed by the federal government, but the Park Service that manages national parks, that's uh, housed under the Department of Interior. And the Forest Service, which manages national forests, is actually housed under the Department of Agriculture and has been uh, since 1905 when Teddy Roosevelt uh, established the Forest Service uh, when he was president and transferred um, what were at the time called forest reserves from the Department of Interior uh, to the Department of Agriculture and renamed them National Forests. And so that really is sort of the origin story of the Forest Service and the National Forests as we know them today. Could you tell us what was it that prompted the start of developing these national forests? Sure. So as America and Americans were moving west uh, after the Civil War, the federal government effectively owned most of the land in the west. Uh, It had obviously taken most of that land from Native Americans, which I also speak about in the Mm -hmm. book. But uh, nonetheless, uh, these lands were considered public domain lands, and they could be given to private industry, to timber companies, Uh, They were given to homesteaders who moved out and established their 160 acres, farmed it, and then became owners of it eventually. And many of them were established as as originally forest reserves and then uh, national forests. And in part, that was to to help prevent them from being overlogged and overutilized, like a lot of the private land in the East had been at that point. So you had forests in New Hampshire, forests in Michigan, forests in Minnesota and Wisconsin, that had really been pretty decimated by industrial timber, you know, up until the 1900s. Fires came through, burned the, burned the, the shrubs that remained, made the soil really difficult to farm. And so uh, folks like Teddy Roosevelt and others didn't want to see that happen to public lands in the West, these public domain lands. So they, through a series of legislation passed by Congress and, and presidential proclamations, uh, were able to uh, carve out some of these lands and bring them into the, the federal estate, put them under uh, management by the Forest Service. And they were guided by a principle of conservation, which the first uh, chief of the Forest Service, Gifford Pinchot, uh, who was a good friend and confidant of Teddy Roosevelt's, articulated. Um, he sort of borrowed from an English philosopher named Jeremy Bentham, uh, who had a approach ethos that he called utilitarianism. And Pinchot kind of modified that a little bit, and uh, the quote is basically that um, where conflicting interests must be reconciled, the question shall always be answered from the standpoint of the greatest good of the greatest number in the long run. And so that quote comes from a letter, actually, that Pinchot drafted to help early forest rangers 
make decisions about how the public might uh, utilize national forests as they were managing them back in the early 1900s. So it's this concept of the greatest good of the greatest number in the long run. So it's really uh, whether or not the Forest Service has practiced this notion of sustainability and the greatest good um, as well as it might have over the over the years, that's debatable. But at base, the concept was to manage these lands so that they could supply a continuous supply of timber uh, for the country. They could supply water for downstream communities. They could supply wildlife habitat, recreation opportunities, grazing opportunities for folks uh, out west in particular who had sheep and cattle that they wanted to graze. So they really were at the time of origin and still multiple use lands where all these different uses are allowed on national forests. And uh, they're all kind of managed so that not one use dominates the other, uh, at least ideally that's how they're managed, and that they can all kind of co- coexist in, uh, in a relatively healthy, uh, intact way. So when you have these national forests, do they interact somehow with the, I don't are there state forests as well? I guess I'm not really clear on the concept of how it all works together. Yeah, it, it is a little complicated. So from a federal land management standpoint, there's, there's four primary sets of federal public lands. There's national parks managed by the mm-hmm. Park Service. There's uh, fish and wildlife refuges that are managed by Fish and Wildlife Service. There's a Bureau of Land Management lands that are managed by the Bureau of Land Management. And that's actually the largest set of federal public lands at a little over 230 million acres. And then there's national forests that are managed by the Forest Service. So federally, we have these four main land management agencies that manage federal lands. At state and local levels, there are other entities like state parks and and, uh, departments of natural resources and conservation that manage state lands that are public lands as well, but they're managed at the state level for various priorities that the state sets uh, through its legislative process. Each of these different land designations are managed for different things, both at the federal level and at the state level. And interestingly, there is a lot of uh, crossover between them, in particular between the, the national forests and national parks. Many of our most iconic national parks that we recognize, like Glacier here in Montana, where I live, Grand Canyon, uh, North Cascades up in Washington, uh, Rocky Mountains in Colorado, Wrangell-St. Elias in in Alaska, they're all bordered or fully surrounded by national forests. Um, In fact, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem um, is anchored by Yellowstone Park, which is about 2 million acres, and it's surrounded by five different national forests. So there's this huge set of public lands that all kind of work together uh, yet differently to preserve the wildlife populations uh, of Yellowstone Park, but then also to provide you know, different types of access and different types of development on those national forests that surround Yellowstone as well. So they very much work in concert, um, but they're all treated a little bit differently. And it does get pretty confusing um, <laughs> until you spend uh, a few years immersed in all of this to to fully sort out how everything works and, and what the different the different agencies do and, and how they do it. Well, that's why I found it so so fascinating, because a lot of the things I have and probably still will confuse, but it, it's really interesting how the preservation of the forest have contributed so much to the overall health of our environment. Would you talk a little bit about that and some of the things that, because of the National Forest, we've been able to improve and enhance environmental uh, issues that have come up? I think one of the most important and sort of lesser understood facets of the National Forest is that both from their inception back in the in the 1800s, late 1800s, all the way up to today, is that they are uh, America's watersheds. 
Mm -hmm. So the Forest Service estimates that 68 million people in America rely directly on national forests for their water. Um, These are communities as big as Atlanta and Salt Lake City and Portland, Oregon, and as small as, you know, uh, Missoula, which relies on national forest watersheds as well. So you've got watershed protection and watershed and water provision as a really fundamentally important and crucial component of the Forest Service's mission and of one of the ecosystem services that these national forests provide to us. So after fires, the Forest Service uh, replants trees to restore those watersheds so that they can continue to provide that clean water uh, back to those communities that rely on it. I think another way that national forests work in concert with you know, the, the natural world is through the protection of wildlife habitat. Each state actually manages the wildlife populations within that state. So the elk, the deer, those are managed by the states and their departments of natural resources or fish and game or whatever. But the Forest Service is required to maintain and manage habitat for those wildlife that live on those national forests. So when those species are listed on the Endangered Species Act or not, the Forest Service is required to maintain certain levels of wildlife populations, or at least to maintain the ecosystem in a way that it can foster healthy populations of wildlife on that particular national forest. So I think both water and wildlife management um, are two ways that the national forests play a real big role in um, the general environmental uh, benefits that, that uh, that we generally see. One of the examples given in the book was talking about how the National Forest Service worked to save the hellbender salamander in Appalachia and how that was an issue. And so they came in to, what did they do, plant millions of trees or something to to help create diversity and improve that environment? Yeah, it's an interesting story, and and it actually has a, a little longer history than that. So in 1911, there was a piece of legislation called the Weeks Act that was passed by Congress, and that allowed, for the first time, the federal government to actually buy land from private owners and add it to the federal estate. Prior to that, the federal government could take those public domain lands that I mentioned earlier that nobody owned mm-hmm. and could bring those into the federal estate. But after the Weeks Act, they could, in fact, purchase private lands and bring them into the federal estate. And the reason that they were allowed to do that, the, the fundamental reason for that legislation being passed, was watershed protection. These lands had been logged heavily. They had then uh, had fire come on them. The soil was eroding. Streams were being polluted. Floods were happening. And so there's been a long history in in human civilization of the connection between healthy forests and clean water. So at the time, the government instructed the Forest Service or enabled the Forest Service to be able to manage these new lands that they bought from private interests and restore them. So the Forest Service did plant a lot of trees. They used natural reforestation, just trees growing naturally in the east. There's a lot of water there. So uh, trees grew after after they had been cut down. And so these forested watersheds were slowly, over 100 years, restored to health. And that then protected the streams and the rivers and the cold, clean water that hellbenders, which are these really amazing giant salamanders that live in these cold water streams in Appalachia, um, they're about three feet long. Imagine finding Ooh. a three-foot-long <laughs> salamander when you're out uh, yeah. trying to fish for trout or something like that. And so it was sort of a, it, it, it's both. It's both a, a, a historical story where this long, century-long restoration of these eastern forests helped uh, restore these streams and the health of these watersheds, 
And now today, the Forest Service works with a lot of different partners to ensure that those streams are still clean, clear, uh, and cold so that the hellbenders can continue to thrive. They work with groups to remove little rock dams that people build so they have pools to swim in on some of these oh. creeks that, that prevent hellbenders from moving around. Um, they work to ensure that hellbenders have the right food to eat and that you know they can access different parts of the stream. And they work to make sure that you know climate change isn't uh, increasing the temperature of those streams by keeping that forest cover there and managing those forests in a healthy way. You know, roads are another issue that can impact stream quality, and so they work to ensure that the roads aren't putting dirt and sediment into streams. So they do a lot, and they also work with groups to get children out snorkeling in these rivers to see the hellbenders and to see all the fish so that they can develop an appreciation and understanding of how all these uh, different components of the ecosystem work together. Greg, what can you tell me about the national forest in Minnesota? I'm not real familiar with them. Oh, wow. Well, you have the Superior National Forest, um, which is a huge uh, national forest. I think it's close to three million acres. And it's actually one of the most popular national forests in the country, particularly because of the Boundary Waters Canoe Mm -hmm. Wilderness Area, which you may have heard of. Oh, yeah. It's obviously pretty famous, um, world-renowned. And so that wilderness area, which I think covers about a million acres of the Superior, is, I think, the most popular wilderness area in the country. And so, obviously, you know, your your listeners are, are familiar with, with the Boundary Waters, most likely, and uh, many, hopefully, have gone up and experienced it. So, yeah, the Superior National Forest is really an amazing resource for the country, and uh, in particularly the Boundary Waters, very popular for folks to go up and, and canoe and, and uh, enjoy other non-motorized, non-mechanical uh, recreation. And of course, you've probably heard the controversies of, you know, bringing pipelines in the area and fighting to keep pipelines out and mining and that sort of thing and to keep the air, area pristine. And I'm sure that goes on across forests across the nation. Yeah, absolutely. So because these lands are managed for multiple uses, mining is one of those uses. And so at times, the Forest Service may determine that a mine in a particular area is is a worthwhile thing to do. At other times, it may determine that it's not. But what's really cool about national forests, and I think something that I really want readers of the book and listeners to this program to understand, is that we as the public have a voice in how those national forests are managed and how some of those decisions are made. There are all kinds of different opportunities for public input into the management of national forests that can help the managers in charge make their decisions as to how to best utilize the resources on those forests. And so, yes, if we're all uh, you know, busy with our lives and we're not engaged, things that, that we may not want to happen on forests might happen, like a mine. If we are engaged and we're participating in those public processes, which, which are open and available and which we can all participate in, then we might have an opportunity to either prevent or at least uh, inform the way that some of those developments might take place. So I think in a lot of ways, our national forests are sort of lowercase d democratic. Um, they provide an opportunity for the public to engage, to participate in management uh, in a way that some other uh, sets of public lands don't necessarily offer. You dedicate an entire chapter to how citizen science helps wildlife so everybody can have a role in part of this show our goal is to let people know how they can have an impact. So talk a little bit about that citizen science piece. So I was really fortunate a few years ago to be able to participate in a, a nascent effort here in Montana to help to help monitor wolverine populations. So wolverines are these, uh, folks are probably somewhat familiar with them, but they're, they're really unique member of the weasel family, actually. 
and they're fairly rare, though the Forest Service didn't know how many wolverines there were on this particular forest, the Bitterroot National Forest here just south of Missoula. So a group of folks came together, worked with the Forest Service to solicit volunteers to go out every weekend during the winter and uh, set up these motion-triggered camera traps where we would, uh, we would literally wire a, a deer leg from roadkill to one tree, and then uh, opposite that one tree, we would wire a motion-triggered camera, and uh, the wolverines would smell the, the deer meat. They would come in, and we'd get photographs, and um, we had little gun, br- gun bristle brushes that we also nailed into the tree, and it would capture hair. Oh. So with that effort, the Forest Service was able to recognize that there were, I think, close to 10 or 15 wolverines on the Bitterroot Forest, something that they had no idea about before. They thought maybe there were wolverines there, but there weren't. they didn't know. And so that, was, that information and that data proved very valuable to the Forest Service because it has to manage the wildlife habitat for wolverines. There are other really cool stories out there up in the Pacific Northwest. Very similar partnership was created with local groups and citizen volunteers to monitor for Pacific Martin. And uh, they actually have found Pacific Martin in uh, the Olympic National Forest where they didn't know that they existed before. There are other citizen science efforts for, for monitoring water quality and plastics in water. And it's this really cool burgeoning field where, you know, regular everyday citizens can go out and follow, you know, some some basic procedures and protocols, and uh, they can help collect the data that forest managers need to understand the wildlife resources better that they are tasked with managing. It's really cool. There's actually a whole government website that's set up um, where folks can find citizen science projects uh, that they can volunteer for and become engaged in that the federal government actually maintains. Do you know the where you go to find that? I actually think it might be citizenscience.org. Uh, okay. But if folks just Google citizen science, they'll be able to find that website. It's, it's one of the first that pops right up. Now, since writing this book, you know, you started at the beginning when it was just developed. How have the health of the forest been? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and I think it probably depends a little bit on who you ask. I think generally the Forest Service is tasked with a pretty complicated mission. They have to manage um, all these uses sort of co-equally. So they have to balance mining, grazing, timber harvesting, recreation, wildlife habitat, and water, and manage these public lands in a way that none of those resources are jeopardized. Whether they've done that successfully in the past or not is a matter of debate. Um, I don't really get into that in the book. The book was really more focused on the national forests and not as much on the Forest Service. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think over the last 20 years, there has been a shift in the way the Forest Service is approaching managing national forests. And, and that is that it now manages ecosystems. So it looks at the entire ecosystem that that forest represents uh, or contains And it manages from an ecosystem standpoint, as opposed to managing from a timber harvesting standpoint or an economic standpoint or even a recreation standpoint. So while there might be some parts of a particular national forest that are managed more for recreation or some national forests that are managed a little bit more for timber harvesting in places where trees grow more quickly, overall, the agency has shifted its management to an ecosystem approach that I think is a fundamental shift that I think will will only continue to improve the the health and the resiliency of national forests. Obviously, one of the biggest issues facing national forests right now is fire, Mm -hmm. uh, and that is uh, a complicated issue. It's driven in part by climate change. It's driven in part by historic management practices. The Forest Service spent about 100 years preventing fires from happening on national forests, and 
many of these forests, if not really all of them across the country, are what we call fire dependent. So they actually need fire to regenerate. What happened was over time, as the Forest Service put out all of these fires, the the fuels accumulated in the forest, and now the fires are much worse than they used to be, and they're causing you know real devastation and and loss of property. Um, but the Forest Service has also shifted and adapted the way that it manages for fires. And now in Missoula, there's a there's an effort to do some thinning and then to burn uh, the forests that surround the community, so that if a fire does come from some of the wilder landscapes, you know, farther away. Uh, when it gets closer to the community of Missoula, it doesn't burn as intensely and, and doesn't impact private property, doesn't impact water supplies, et cetera. So there's a lot that the Forest Service is doing now to manage for, for fire and to manage for reducing fire's impact to communities. And I think that coupled with the, the sort of ecosystem focus and the restoration focus that the agency has adopted over the last 20 years, I think is, is pretty promising for the future of national forests generally. So Fire and climate change uh, in particular are, are obviously major issues that, um, you know, we just don't know exactly how it's all going to play out moving forward. Because we certainly hear a lot about the fires out west, especially, and we even had the issues with our own, in our own national forest, this up by the boundary waters being threatened and that sort of thing. Do you think that given the number of years and the things that they've learned, do you think that they will, they have a better handle on maybe dealing with that now? Or do you think we're going to continue to see more of, of these fires because of the way the climate's changing? I think both, to be honest with you. I think um, in some places they're getting a better handle on it. Uh, you know, the reality is that these forests, most of them, particularly out west, you know, they historically they burned every 20 years or so. And it's been 100 years since many of them have burned. Oh. So I think a lot of these forests need to burn. There are many types of trees that the cones will only open up and, and uh, release the seeds if a fire comes through and melt this wax casing that the cones have. So these are very fire-dependent landscapes. And I think for the last 80 years or so, the Forest Service prevented fires. They had what they called the out by 10 policy, where any fire that was detected on a national forest was supposed to be put out by 10 a.m. the next morning. Oh. That policy changed in the 1990s. They now let fires burn where they're not going to impact private property. So I think in some places they're doing a much better job. In other places, their their challenge is increasing because people are moving farther and farther into what we call the wildland-urban interface. So areas in rural communities that are near national forests where people hadn't lived, now people are living. So when a fire burns on that national forest, it can threaten that private property, it can threaten lives, so the Forest Service has to has to try to fight those fires. So I think there's an onus on the public to better understand the history of how the forests were managed, why fire conditions are the way that they are right now. Certainly there's climate change that's driving a lot of that, that's drying out forests, that's, you know, producing drought, etc. And that is, you know, that's an external factor that, that's out of the Forest Service's control in a lot of ways. So I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. I would also say and this isn't an apology for the Forest Service, uh, but they are starved for resources. Mm. They, they don't have enough staff. They don't have enough funding. Firefighting consumes roughly 50% of the Forest Service's budget each year wow. um, recently, and that is up from you know 20% uh, a couple decades ago. So they're reprogramming money that they might use to, to do vegetation treatments on forests that would prevent severe fires they have to use that money to fight fires. So the Forest Service, I think, needs more resources from Congress to better do their job. It needs a little help from the public to better understand some of this history and to better understand when they move into a rural area, build their house in the woods. 
it's incumbent on them to make sure that they have defensible space around their property, that should a fire come near their property, they have some opportunity. They've, they've done some treatments around that to, to help prevent that fire from burning their house down, which makes it easier for the Forest Service to then help prevent that loss of private property and, and life. We have been talking with Greg M. Peters, the author of Our National Forests, and he reveals an inside look at America's most important public land and the people committed to protecting it and ensuring access for all. If there's one thing you want people to get out of your book, Our National Forest, what would that be, Greg? I think it's that we have that opportunity to participate in the management of these and uh, that the broader a group of Americans that do participate that, you know, crosses the the spectrum of gender, age, you know, skin color, body shape, body size, the better off we are, I think. And so I hope that the, the book gives people more insight into these public lands and inspires them in some way to become a little bit more engaged uh, with those public lands. And, you know, even if that's just visiting or, or taking a neighbor out uh, or a child out onto the forest, or it's uh, getting, you know, fully immersed in, in a public planning process or commenting on specific projects, I hope folks realize that they have that opportunity to help influence the way that these lands are managed moving into the future. Well, it is a beautiful book with the the illustrations, the pictures, and the writing itself. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I know it's online. You could buy it anywhere, I'm sure, at local bookstores. It's through Timber Press. Anything else? Do you have a website or something people can go to learn more about you and your work? I do, yeah. GregMPeters.com. And yeah, the book uh, actually hits bookstores today, November 9th. So it should be available in your local bookstore. If it isn't, please ask for it. And then, yes, it's also available online, uh, as you mentioned. And there's actually a Kindle and an audiobook version available as well for folks who who may want to listen to it or read it on their Kindle. Well, I would certainly recommend it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where you are part owner. Member NCUA. More at mnvalleyfcu.coop. Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by Lee Pomeroy. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union. With two locations in Mankato since 1934, it pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.